Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, we read. Now, the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. In Mark 11, we are introduced to the final week of the life of Jesus. Traditionally, it's been called Passion Week. Earlier in the chapter, it began with a celebration on Sunday in verses 1 through 11. But now Mark's attention turns to a strange curse in verses 12 through 14. And then what we might call a strategic cleansing in verses 15 through 19. Jesus will move from the role of servant king to servant judge. Jesus expects fruit in our life and reverence in our worship. We might think of those two concepts of our ministries coming to fruition and then our lives dedicated to consecration. We're going to go right to the text to provide our introduction. Look in verse 12. It says, now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry The events of the triumphal entry took place on Sunday, like I said, in verses 1 through 11. And so when it says, now the next day is Monday. Jesus has spent the night in Bethany. And remember, Bethany is on the outskirts of Jerusalem, some two miles from the temple. He has been probably staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He gets up early and he begins the journey towards Jerusalem. And note what the text says. He was hungry. You should ask the question, did Jesus experience hunger? And the right answer, of course, is yes. His physical need for food will become an opportunity to teach us another lesson. Isn't that interesting how Jesus always acts in such a way that he will teach you and me. He will save us. He will help us. He will instruct us. 
Now, some people are already thinking ahead in the text. They're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why does Jesus curse this poor, innocent fig tree? This is so counter to his character. I know what some of you are thinking. You were thinking, well, the Jesus I know would never lash out at a poor fig tree for not bearing fruit. Especially when you consider verse 13. It's not the season for figs. The act becomes even more puzzling. But before you accuse Jesus of going off the messianic reservation, I just want you to consider a couple of things. I want you to just pause for just a moment. Because I'm going to ask you a question. A question that I know each and every one of you know the answer to. Is God good? What's the right answer? He is good. Here is the next question. Is God severe? I've got one no, one tentative yes. For those of you who might be unfamiliar with the New Testament, in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, Paul writes, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. He is good and he is holy. He is good and he is severe and we rightly understand God's goodness. But sometimes we fail to consider his his severity. God is love. He is pure. He is just. And remember, the chief characteristic or at least one of the chief attributes of God is he is holy. There's a reason why the angels in heaven surround him and they sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. You see, Jesus demonstrates care and forgiveness, but Jesus also holds human beings responsible and accountable. The Lord isn't foolish and he isn't indulgent. He isn't weak, but mighty. And he is good to human beings. And Jesus expects fruitfulness in our lives. He comes to Jerusalem and he expects fruit. He comes to us and he expects fruit. Now, I want you to think this through. Jesus is hungry for fruit. And maybe he's even hungry for fruit in your life. Like I said, we might be willing to concede God expects fruitfulness from our lives. But what we are sometimes unwilling to concede is that God will punish unfruitfulness. And yet this is a reoccurring theme in the New Testament. If you look carefully in John chapter 15 and verses 1 and 2, you'll remember that Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And again, in chapter 15, verse 8, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. You exist to glorify God. You exist To bear fruit. And so in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 we read. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. As a matter of fact you may not understand this. But in Luke 19.10 when it says that which was lost. There's a synonym for that word. It's unfruitful. And in verse 13 look what it says in our text. And seeing from afar a fig tree. 
having leaves. He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Do you know where the first mention of a fig tree is in the Bible? It's the book of Genesis. Do you remember when Adam and Eve disobey God? And you'll remember that they find a fig tree and they tear its leaves and they sew the leaves together. And sometimes a fig tree becomes a type and a picture of man-made religion and man-made covering, particularly when it comes to leaves. And sometimes a fig tree is just a fig tree. But here... The tree held out the hope of fruit. Look what it says in seeing from afar, a fig tree having leaves. The idea is the tree has potential. It's lush and full of leaves despite the early date. And if you're unfamiliar with agriculture in the New Testament and particularly in the land of Israel, William MacDonald writes, quote, fig trees in Bible lands produced an early fruit before the leaves appeared. This fruit was edible. It was a harbinger of the regular crop here described as the time of gathering figs. If no early figs appeared, then that was a sign that there would be no regular crop later on. When Jesus came to the nation of Israel, there were leaves which speak of profession, but there's no fruit for God. There was a promise without fulfillment, profession without reality. Jesus was hungry. Hungry for fruit from the nation, unquote. When a tree is lush and green, it holds out the hope of fruitfulness. And there's the rub. There's the rub. You see, a healthy fig tree is supposed to bear fruit. And the Jewish nation was supposed to bear fruit. And a Christian is supposed to bear fruit. And Jesus expected fruit to be present. And you need to understand something. When Jesus comes, they have the benefit of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. They're familiar with the book of Judges and Joshua. They know about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. They're completely familiar with the promises that were made. And so the expectation for them to bring forth fruit, to understand and recognize their Messiah, to understand the promises, it holds out all of those things. And that's what profession does. Jesus expects fruit to be present. Israel and Jerusalem were given privilege and opportunity. But in spite of privileges and opportunities, Israel is outwardly fruitless and inwardly corrupt. And so the nation is outwardly fruitless and inwardly corrupt. A healthy fig tree is supposed to bear fruit. And that's what profession does. It stirs expectation. The Lord expected the nation and the people to honor him. The New Testament expectation is that that the same is true for Christians, that Christians will act like Christians. Profession comes with an expectation of fruitfulness. And so that becomes the idea. The idea is that Christians are expected with the profession to have fruit. So what about men and women who make a confession? They sing songs. 
I love you, Jesus. I want to serve you, Jesus. People make an outward profession. They go to church. They bring a Bible like the leafy appearance of a fig tree. Things look healthy. The tree looks like it's been watered. It looks like it's been sprayed for bugs. It looks like it's been cultivated. And so it is when we come. And we have our big Bibles and we have our big smile. Years ago, there was a fast food commercial. Some of you are familiar with it. There was this little old lady and she would come out and she'd say, where's the beef? Because the expectation is you go to a hamburger joint, you don't expect a pitiful patty. You don't expect something that's been tortured and frozen and thawed and polluted with all kinds of carcinogenic substances. And so you look under this little bun and you go, where's the beef? And Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he says, where's the fruit? Jesus comes to the church and he says, where's the fruit? Jesus comes to the believer and says, where's the fruit? Look at the text. Jesus comes and looks and inspects and examines and finds nothing. No fruit whatsoever. You see, the appearance of leaves attracts attention and the appearance of leaves invites inspection and the appearance of a profession of faith invites attention. And when you profess faith in Jesus and confidence in Jesus, do you realize what you're doing? You're inviting his attention. The moment that you show up and you say, I think that the Bible's true and I think that Jesus is right and I think that my sin is a problem and I think that the promises of God apply to me and all of a sudden with the profession of faith and confidence of Jesus there's an invitation of inspection and examination and so it shouldn't concern you that Jesus wants to look and see what's under your leaves. William Barclay writes about Charles Lamb, who tells of a certain man named Samuel Legrese, who in his life there were three stages. He writes, when he was young, people said of him, he's going to do something. And as he grew older and did nothing, they said of him, he could do something if he tried. Towards the end, they said of him, he might have done something if he had tried. His life was the tale of a promise that was never fulfilled, unquote. Someone came up to me in first service and reminded me of a saying that it's never too late to become what you might have been. It's never too late for you to turn from sin. It's never too late for you to cultivate the fruit that God. It's never too late for you to express that. You see... In response, look what it says in verse 14. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And the disciples heard it. 
the absence of no early fruit probably meant that there would be no later fruit. And you see, the truth is there is fruit even for the unbeliever because everyone, make no mistake about it, everyone trusts something. The Christian trusts Christ. The unbeliever trusts himself or herself. They trust something. And so the trust becomes a type of judgment. And what is the fruit of unbelief? What is the fruit of of rejecting God and Christ? It's judgment. And the curse prefigures a future judgment that's going to fall because Jesus comes to Judea and expects fruit and finds none. He comes to Jerusalem and expects fruit and finds none. And the Roman armies will come. And many of you are familiar with the fact that the Roman armies, the 10th and 12th legions under Titus and Vespasian will come and they will destroy the city. And Josephus writes that they will murder and execute Jews by the hundreds of thousands, so much so that they will cut down trees till there are no more trees to crucify them and there's no more land to place the cross on. Does this mean that Israel was cursed to perpetual barrenness? Paul argues in the book of Romans that the Jewish people and the Jewish nation have been set aside for a season, but the nation will be reborn and the nation will be restored to a position of favor and fruitfulness. And you've got to understand something. There's something that you need to know, because whether you're really knowledgeable about the Bible or whether you're not so knowledgeable about the Bible, almost everyone who's hearing my voice knows that Jesus performs miracles. But do you realize that this is the only miracle that involves a curse rather than a blessing? This is the only miracle where death takes place rather than life. And for those of you who are concerned about the tree, maybe I need to remind you that it's not a person that he is cursing. It's this tree. There might be the exception. I I thought of the miracle where Jesus basically casts the demons into a, a herd of swine. Remember where he invents deviled ham? But even deviled ham has some value if you don't keep kosher. Some have suggested that this passage presents a problem for Christians and Christian scholars. But the passage is easily answered if you just ask a simple question. Does the creator of the universe have the right to destroy a plant in order to teach an important spiritual lesson to save some human being from an eternal existence apart from him? Does God have the right to try and save you? Does he have the right to teach an important lesson about judgment like he did in Jonah in the book of Nineveh? You'll remember where a a, a gourd sprouts up and bears fruit and dies all within a matter of moments. The interpretation applies to Israel and to Jerusalem and its people, but the applications are for us and for our offspring and for every nation who combines a high talk with a low walk. 
for every single person who thinks that confession and profession apart from fruit, that that's a lifestyle that God will honor. Does it surprise you that Jesus condemns profession without fruit? The tree had an empty profession. Does it surprise you that Jesus condemns a promise without fulfillment? Does it surprise you that uselessness invites disaster? I grew up in the 50s and the 60s. Were you ever the victim of mom's bad plastic fruit arrangements? My mom, for whatever reason, thought that plastic fruit was cool. I just don't get it. Even then, I didn't get it. You'd have those little plastic bananas and plastic peaches and plastic apples and the, and the plastic fake grapes. And what do you do with them? You can't eat them. And my mom would point out, but they never go bad. Mom, that's because they're not alive. You see, if you ask and answer the question about the main characteristics of fruit, one of the main characteristics of fruit is that they have life and they have nourishment and they have within themselves the ability to reproduce. What can you do with plastic fruit? Melt it down and make candles? And so fruit trees are expected to bring forth fruit. But the tree was deceptive. The tree might be able to provide shade or it might be able to provide lumber for firewood, but the tree wouldn't produce fruit and fruit for its maker at the most important point in the ministry of Jesus where he expects it to be there. And so it is with human beings who profess to know God and who profess to serve God and who profess to love Jesus and who profess to serve Jesus. They go, I I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not an unbeliever. But then when you ask and you answer the question, how does your life taste? Are you delicious? Are you nutritious? Are you scrumptedly unctuous? Fruit's supposed to be tasty and reproducible. So it shouldn't surprise you if Jesus shows up one day and he looks underneath your leaves. He expects believers to come to fruition. He expected it for Israel and he expected it for Jerusalem and he expects it for us. And look what it says in verse 15. The servant expects reverence. In verse 15 it says, so they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Once again, Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers. Those of you who are familiar with Matthew and Luke and John understand that this is not the first time that Jesus shows up and he drives out the money changers. But you should be able to ask, what is going on here in the New Testament? This is Jesus gone wild. First, he curses a fig tree and now he's driving out the money changers. Why? 
Because Jesus doesn't have a whole lot of sympathy for those who view sacred activities as big business. Jesus loves sinners and hates sin. But what else does Jesus hate? And does it shock you and surprise you that there are things that Jesus absolutely and positively despises? And one of the things that he despises is a misrepresentation of God and a misrepresentation of the gospel and a misrepresentation of the covenant and and a misrepresentation of all of the stuff that God has presented to us in his word. And so the temple was supposed to be a place where people could come and learn about God and learn about salvation. It was supposed to be a place where people could worship and people could pray, but there was This booming business that was set up in the court of the Gentiles. You may not know this, but all male Jews over the age of 20 were required by law to pay a temple tax. And the tax was one half shekel per year. And the tax had to be paid in a particular kind of coinage. For ordinary commerce, you could use Roman coins or Greek coins or Egyptian coins or Syrian coins. But the temple payment was made in shekels and half shekels of Tyre. And Jews would converge on Judea and Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. And they would bring coins from Rome and coins from Babylon and coins from Egypt. Jews came and they had to convert the foreign money into a coin that was prescribed by the temple authority. And the conversion rate was sometimes 20 percent and 50 percent and 100 percent. Now, a half shekel may not seem a whole lot to you. But for an observant Jew. In the first century, it was half a week's wage. A full shekel was one week's wage for a skilled artisan and people would come. Jews would come and Gentiles would come. And they were taken advantage of. And the the Levitical system authorized certain kinds of sacrifices, including doves. And so when you look at the statement in the text where it says... He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Remember who bought those doves. The dove was an offering for the poor. The dove was an offering that Joseph and Mary brought when Jesus was born because it was all that they could afford. And if I could take you back in time and space and I could transport you back to the temple mount and we're outside of the temple and we're getting ready to go in, you could buy two doves for a penny. What is a penny? It's a pruta. You would take a hundred of these prutas to make the first smallest silver coin. It would be like If you ever go to the county fair and and you're at Jefferson County Fair and all of a sudden you get a turkey drum for a dollar. They would buy doves on a stick for a penny. But when you come into the temple, that penny becomes a dollar. A hundred times more expensive. It's sort of like when you go to the movie theater and you go... Are you kidding me? This soda's four ninety nine. Don't you realize I could get this at McDonald's all day long for ninety nine cents? Why is it so much more expensive when you walk into the AMC theater? You know why? 
because they've got you. And that's exactly what was happening here. The dove was the offering for the poor and the the dove was the offering for the purification of women. You'll remember in Luke chapter two, verse 22, after Mary gives birth to Jesus, she offers a dove for the purification. Also, it was a dove that was offered when the cleansing would take place of a leper. And when they would offer thanksgiving and praise, they would give a dove and the sacrificial victim had to be without spot or blemish. And even though you could buy it for a penny on the outside, when you would bring the dove onto the temple mount, it was never good enough. And so they would say, there's a slight problem with your dove. In order to get a dove that's going to pass the inspection, you would have to buy it from my cousin here who happens to be in the, the dove business. And now all of a sudden, A dove that could be purchased for a penny on the outside cost a dollar on the inside or two dollars on the inside or five dollars on the inside. And the prophets would pour into the coffers of the high priest family. And the Jews were very much aware of this abuse. Barclay writes, quote, it was the fact that poor, humble pilgrims were being swindled that moved Jesus to wrath. Lagrange, the great scholar who knew the East so well, tells us that this is precisely the same situation that still obtains in Mecca. The pilgrim seeking the divine presence finds himself in the middle of a noisy uproar where the one aim of the seller is to exact as much of a price as possible and where the pilgrims argue and defend themselves with equal fierceness, unquote. And if you happen to have the privilege of going to Israel anytime soon and we make it to the Temple Mount, you're going to be accosted by Arab children and they'll try and sell you bookmarks and postcards for a dollar or as many as they can, as quickly as they can. And in verse 16, and it says, and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. People would haul their gear through the courtyard. The temple courtyard provided a shortcut from the eastern part of the city to the Mount of Olives. And they were even violating their own law. The Mishnah lays down the law. It says, a man may not enter the temple mount with his staff, with his sandal, with his wallet, with dust upon his feet, nor may he make it a short bypath. And Jesus said, you're taking sacred things for granted. The court of the Gentiles was not treated as a sacred place, but as a commercial place and a thoroughfare. And the religious leaders might have rationalized it because they're thinking in their mind, well, the temple, in order to understand it, you have to understand that there's a holy of holy in the middle. And then there's a courtyard for the priests. And then there's a courtyard for the men. And there's a courtyard for the women. And then there's the courtyard for the Gentile. And even though the holiest of the holies is the most holy place, the least holy place is the Gentile place, so we might as well use it as a location for business. After all, there's a reason why God made Gentiles. Somebody has to buy retail. But you have to understand something of that mentality. 
The court of the Gentiles was supposed to be a place where people could go and they could understand about God and they could hear about God and they could pray to God and they could hear the message of hope. And the Gentiles were supposed to be able to go there so that people would point them to a place where they would understand what kind of a God was God and what kind of a promise that he had made. The same is true today. The church isn't supposed to be a place where you make crass commercial. The church is supposed to be a place where people understand. Can you go to a church? Can you actually hear the gospel at a church? Can you hear a message of hope? Can you understand what kind of a God is presented in the Bible? And so it is with us. We have this sort of outer court in our own life where we combine the sacred with the secular. And we we understand that we're going to come to church and we're going to do things at the church. But home is different from church and business is different from home. And what happens in the church doesn't necessarily happen in the home and it doesn't necessarily happen at the business. But Jesus is trying to remind us that your changed heart should be a changed heart at home and it should be a changed heart where you work. Your life has been redeemed by God in Christ and it should permeate and saturate every part of your being. Have you ever heard someone say, I hate going to church? Because all they ever do is ask for money. Until you come here. Where people, instead of hearing me beg for money, they come up to me and they beg me to give. They go, you guys never passed a plate. How, how do I actually give here? Did you miss Anthony's exciting announcements? Why, it's those little brown boxes all around the building. That's how you give. It makes perfect sense to me that people would hate going to a church where all they're ever asked for is money. When the pastor looks at you as a gift or a donation and they begin to look around the building and they think, oh, there's five dollars. Oh, there's ten dollars. I can't expect anything from this person. Is that really what church is supposed to be about? A place that is divided into the givers and the people who don't give? And Jesus is trying to make it abundantly clear to them. In verse 17, he says, then he taught, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus draws from two Old Testament prophets. He quotes Isaiah in part of the verse, and he quotes Jeremiah in the other part of the verse. William MacDonald writes, quote, he condemned desecration. He condemned exclusivism. He condemns commercialism. God intended the temple to be a house of prayer for all nations, Isaiah 56, 7, not just for Israel. They made a religious market, a hangout for shysters and racketeers. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And so the Lord Jesus is angry that the religious leaders and the hucksters use the temple as a precinct or a base of operations to cheat poor Jews and inquiring Gentiles. And that was never supposed to be the way that it was. And Jesus remains angry with religious people who misrepresent God and who misrepresent God's word and who misrepresents God's plan of salvation, who have 
a less than appropriate view of dedication, consecration, holiness. And by the way, Mark, Mark is the only gospel that includes the statement that my house will be a prayer for all nations. That there has to be a place where a Gentile can go and understand what kind of a God is God and what kind of a loving God is he and what kind of a redemptive God is he and how is he going to forgive sin and how is he going to reconcile people to himself. But they were treating the people not as worshipers. They weren't even treating them like they were human beings. They were treating them like a gravy train. A way to generate wealth and keep wealth. And what a scam. Exploiting people in the name of religion. And there are a few things that are worse than that. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or all nations. There was a sign posted on a wall between the court of the Gentiles and into the court of the women. And on the sign, it said, if you go beyond this space, you will be killed and it's your own fault. Now, imagine you're a Gentile and you're in the court of the Gentiles and you're hearing the hucksters calling for money, hawking their wares. You hear the clutter and the clamor and you come up upon the sign that says Gentile. If you go beyond this space, guess what? You're going to be put to death and your death is going to be on your own head. You feel welcome. Imagine you come to a church. And the pastor shamelessly makes you feel guilty about what you do or don't have. He shamelessly suggests that you don't have any value whatsoever unless you put something in the offering plate. And you wonder how they really feel about you. You wonder why you're even there. You wonder if you can go to a place and you can hear the truth about redemption and reconciliation with God. And guess what? The fact that Mark records this wouldn't have been lost on the Gentile audience as Mark and Peter begin to tell the story of Passover and why they were there to begin with. The feast of the Passover commemorated God's redemption of his people. And it was supposed to be a type and a picture where you could see how you could be redeemed. And the scribes, it says in verse 18, and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Think about this for just a moment. Who is offended by the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus? It's the scribes and the chief priests. But I want to draw your attention to something important in the text that you might have missed. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it. The word translated heard it. Echosan, eris, tense. It's the fact of their hearing. The idea is that they heard it with their own ears. They're hearing what Jesus is saying with their own ears. And do you understand what Jesus is doing? He's claiming Authority. There's a reason why he's doing what he's doing and he's saying what he's saying. And the moment that you go into the court of the Gentiles and you flip over the tables, you're suggesting something that you are in charge. 
So I need to ask you a question. Is Jesus claiming to have more authority than the scribes? Is Jesus claiming to have more authority than the priests? Is Jesus suggesting that people should listen to what he has to say? I think that the answer is yes, because the moment he says, this is my father's house. You know, what you do in your own home is your own business. But aren't there minimum standards of propriety when you go and you visit someone? Wouldn't you, even in a worst case scenario, not make yourself at home unless the person invited you to make yourself at home? And Jesus is claiming an authority that supersedes their authority. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jesus is claiming authority higher than theirs. And so what is their plan? We have to get rid of them. We, ha- we have to get rid of them. It's the same plan that most people have exactly to this very day. The moment that Jesus shows up and he claims to have authority in your life, I don't know if you're the kind of person, I'm sure you would never say, you're not my boss and you can't tell me what to do. And I've got to tell you something. I don't want to be your boss and I don't want to tell you what to do. I love being the pastor of this church and maybe one of the most uncomfortable things for me to do is to remind people what the Bible says. But I'm here not to tell you what to do, but I am here to tell you and remind you that the moment that you invite Jesus into your life, the moment that you say, I love you, Lord, the moment that you cry out to him, you remember what you're doing. You're inviting inspection from him. And Jesus shows up and he looks under the leaves on the boughs of your tree and he begins to examine them for fruit. But the religious leaders, they understand something. They understand that he has to go. And what are they going to do? They're going to get rid of him. Why? For they feared him. Epho, bonto, it's in perfect tense, implying a continual fear. The idea is that they were afraid of him every moment, of, of every moment that he was speaking. Why? Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because to the people, Jesus was a hero. He's a Messiah. He's saying things that all of us really want to hear. About justice and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and redemption. When you follow Jesus and you listen to his words and you see the way that he deals with the oppressed and the marginalized. And those people who have been drawn outside the circle of people's favor. You you are attracted to him. It's almost impossible to not be attracted to him. And so they want to get rid of him. But in order to get rid of him, they have to turn the people's sentiment against him. Again, David McKenna writes, a purging also brings hate because Jesus undercuts the prophets and publicly embarrasses the agents of the high priest. The hierarchy of the temple joins in conspiracy with the scribes to kill him. Strange, isn't it? Jesus denied their tradition, repudiated their teaching, condemned their spirit. But the chief priests don't think about violence until he touches their checkbook. 
uh-oh, now you're hurting me. And the forces line up. The forces line up on Jesus' side. And the forces line up on the other side. And look what it says in verse 19. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Once again, the text mentions that Jesus exits the city and returns to Bethany to spend the night. Shocking. Should we ask the text a question again? Well, why is that? When evening had come, he went out of the city. Why is that? Because Jerusalem isn't safe. The city's not safe. It's hard to be in a place where so many people want you dead. Bethany will be safe for now. He'll go to a place where he's safe for now. He'll go to a place where people love him. He'll go to a place where people are committed to him. And you see, the point of this passage isn't to make you feel bad. The point of this passage is to allow you and remind you that you are inviting Jesus to inspect the circumstances of your life and the in your heart. Because leaves are a sad substitute for fruit and confession and profession are sad substitutes for, for substance. In his commentary on Mark, David McKenna again writes, quote, chosen by divine appointment, given God's law, protected from annihilation, led to a new land, disciplined in exile, blessed beyond measure. Israel stands in the center of the world as the source of God's redemptive hope. And instead of fulfilling the hope by accepting Jesus as the Messiah, God's own people counter his coming with a rigid display of empty ritual and human interpretation and meaningless symbols, unquote. And Jesus shows up for you. Some of you have the privilege of being raised in a Christian home and you've had access to the Bible. You've had repeated access to all of the the wonderful benefits that come from being in a right relationship with God and Christ. So does it shock you and surprise you? That you would expect some fruit. Jesus curses the fig tree and then he cleanses the temple. But remember, purging always has a purpose. Do you remember in the New Testament when a man had a demon cast out of him and Jesus said, make sure that you keep the house swept so that seven more demons, more wicked than the one that you got rid of, doesn't take hold. And that seems to be part of the point. The Lord comes to purge and cleanse Because the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. It was supposed to be reopened to the promise where the gospel could be heard and the people could respond so that all people everywhere could hear the truth about God and the truth about his Messiah and the truth about redemption. So does Jesus continue to hunger for fruit? He's hungry. And he sees the profession. He sees the leaves. And what you do the moment that you open up your mouth and you say, I love you, Lord. Lord, I want you in my life. 
Lord, I want you to make a difference in my life. You're inviting the inspection to take place. And what is the fruit that he's looking for? Well, if Galatians 5 is any indication, it's love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and faith and meekness and temperance. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and righteousness or uprightness in Philippians 1.11, filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus. The Bible speaks of the fruit of holiness or separation to God, being made free from sin. You become servants to God and you have your fruit, holiness or separation. The Bible speaks of the fruit of our lips, You speak words of praise. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. The fruit of our lips. What about the fruit in work, conversion and consecration? Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 1 verse 13 and he says, I desire fruit from your account. The fruit of generosity, ministering to others. Fruit to God. Romans 7, 4 says, bring forth fruit unto God. And it won't be possible. With a simple confession. And a simple profession. If the fruit of the Spirit is love, then it necessitates the presence of the Spirit in your life. And submission to that spirit. And a willingness to obey. There's a reason why God gave you the ability to choose and choose otherwise. And you have this exciting possibility. To be what you always could have been. A man, a woman who loves the Lord. And expresses that love. In a meaningful way. That translates to life and nutrition and reproduction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that for Jesus, he will go back to Bethany. And tomorrow it's going to be Tuesday. And he's going to be living these final moments. And there's so much to do and there's so much to say and there's so many lessons that need to be learned. But Lord, we pray that we would learn the lesson of what it means to come to full fruition and consecration. Lord, we pray that the expectation that you have, that we would bear fruit and that we would be sensitive and submissive to things that are sacred. That, Lord, we would watch what we say and that we would watch what we do and that we would remind ourselves that we are supposed to be a place where people can hear the truth about the love of God and the ministry of Jesus and what it means to have a right relationship with God without fear of isolation, neglect, persecution. Lord, we pray. That we wouldn't misrepresent you to people who are wondering what is Christianity really all about and what is Jesus really like and how can I even know if any of this stuff is true. Lord, I pray that they would see Jesus for who he really is. 
both good and severe, both gracious and willing to call people into an account. Lord, we know that our lives matter. And Lord, I pray for that life that is even asking that question, does my life matter? Lord, I pray that they would submit their life to you, that they would confess their sin and that they would turn to you in repentance and confidence. That they would receive Jesus and fall in love with him and walk with him. And Lord, we commit this to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.